Okay. Okay, here we are, kids. We're here with Kofo Live and Undead. I'm your host, Daniel Crozier, and that's our new intro from our uh, sponsor, Summer Twins Talent or Summer Twins Productions. Uh, they make uh, amazing horror movies and, and uh, all kinds of crazy fun stuff. So we're, we're, we're playing around with a new format. We're now on StreamYard. We're streaming to you live, uh, and I've got my guest, Graham Davis, but first, our actual Kofo Live and Undead new video intro. It's ridiculous. Oh my gosh, that oh. was bizarre. What in the hell are we doing? I love it. And and we're here with Graham Davis, writer, oh. editor, you know, maker of board games, you know, editor and collector of uh, fantastic, uh, you know, anthologies and books. Oh man. How are you, Graham? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, this is a, a pretty exciting. Uh, I think you and I met, what was it, a year and a half ago? I think uh, you were just releasing uh, your collection of more deadly, more deadlier than the male. Is that correct? More deadly than the male. Yes, that's right. You, you uh, showed up at one of my signings. Yeah, I think that was uh, – what was the bookstore? Uh, I think uh, – was it Luke Henderson? Yeah, I, I, the, the bookies in Glendale. Right, right, yeah. Um, I think he's a mutual friend. Uh, I, I met him years ago, I think, during Mile High Horror Film Fest. He was All right. curating a bunch of vendors, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm you know comic book artist uh, in the horror genre, and, and so he's just like, hey, you're weird. Why don't you come <laughs> hang out? Yeah, well, he's been very supportive of uh, of me and a lot of other local writers. Uh, I've uh, I've done two or three uh, events there, and uh, he always makes it fun. Ah, oh, that's that's fantastic. Well, you know, Graham, uh, I'm so grateful to, to have you on the show finally, and, uh, and be able to to, to chat with you. Um, yeah, uh, for everybody watching out there, and remember, everybody. We're live, so feel free to uh, comment and, and uh, ask some questions of Graham. Uh, we're we're going to, you know, he's going to try and, and answer them. And, uh, and I'm going to try and learn, relearn the, the English language. I think I'm already <laughs> tripping over my own tongue. So, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, Graham, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you came from, you know, kind of growing up, how you got mm -hmm. into, uh, you know, writing and, and doing uh, and designing and uh, and okay. uh, doing board games and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as you can probably tell by listening to me, uh, I was born in England and um, spent the first half of my life there. Uh, and ooh, let me see. I think it all started with a Saturday morning rerun of uh, Ray Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts when I was about six years old on my parents' old black and white TV. And those monsters just blew me away. And I remember that Christmas, I, uh, I confused a department store Santa somewhat by asking for a book on Greek mythology. I ended up getting a model kit for a vintage car, but what can you do? Uh, and um, so ever since then, I've been obsessed with um, mythology and folklore and monsters. And, uh, you know, as I got older, I moved on and discovered uh, the old Hammer and Universal Horrors and uh, started uh, reading the stories behind them and uh, you know it was uh, it just all snowballed from there oh that's that's fantastic and and, and uh, you know uh, how did you come come about you know coming over to to the u.s Ah, well, um, when i was in grad school i met an american exchange student uh, from whom it's not a perfect story because we're divorced now but uh, <laughs> that's that's all right. But uh, yeah, I've lived uh, in the states mostly in in the Denver area ever since 1990. Oh no, kidding! Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And then and then you you uh, still have a career in doing board games and designing video games and stuff like that. You yeah. Know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, like a, a lot of people in the early 80s uh, who were at college in the early 80s, I spent way too much time playing Dungeons and Dragons. Awesome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, you can kind of see the, uh, the, the, the monster connection coming in there. Mm -hmm. And um, there was uh, back in that, the day, there was a British magazine called White Dwarf which was published by Games Workshop, who at that time, they're best known today for Warhammer and miniatures and stuff. But at that time, they were, had a much broader uh, remit, and they actually printed Dungeons and & Dragons and various other early tabletop role-playing games under license for the UK market. Cool. And so I started sending articles to, uh, to White Dwarf magazine, and after a while, they broke down and published one. And better still, they sent me a check, Not which being a, a good undergraduate student, I converted into beer with all dispatch and then went back to write more. <laughs> and after two or three years of this, um, Games Workshop was thinking of putting out their own game, a role-playing game based on their Warhammer miniatures game. And I was one of the people they hired to help make that happen because I proved to be a, a reliable and good quality freelancer. Nice. And uh, so for the next, ooh, well, the second half of the 80s, more or less, I was working on that at Games Workshop. And then after I moved to the States in 1990, I turned freelance. I did a lot more tabletop stuff, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, your uh, uh, listeners, viewers, whoever you are out there, what you call yourselves, um, uh, you may know that. Um, I worked on a, the first years worth of uh, releases for that and then i transitioned into video games because the money's better and uh i've just been jogging along ever since as as my father used to say avoiding getting a proper job 
<laughs> why bother with that when you can make a living doing awesome stuff? So I that I didn't realize that uh, you know you were doing a you know vampire masquerade and all, mm -hmm. all that. That's that's fantastic. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the beauties of a live event. You can't edit that out. I know. Yeah. It's just like nothing but hiccups. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, um, when I was getting ready to leave Games Workshop and move to the States, um, I got put in touch with uh, uh, Mark Reinhagen, who was just starting White Wolf Publishing. And... Uh, we had a few transatlantic, very expensive phone calls talking about vampires and movies and literature and, and whatever. And uh, I ended up uh, writing for, for White Wolf as a freelancer for about the, the first year or so. Nice. Like, uh, you know, during those conversations, like what, what kind of like influences did uh, you guys draw upon? Um pretty broad range because uh you know the approach that uh, white wolf's taken to vampires is uh, to break them down into clans and uh, you can recognize you know there's a nosferatu clan there's right. a uh, an 80s soap opera with shoulder pads and fangs clan there's uh, you know all kinds of others so basically as many influences as you can bring in yeah uh, and then they went around the world, uh, vampires from different cultures, Asia and, and elsewhere. So, you know, uh, I mean, it was it was a classic sort of geek off. You always know how it goes. When two geeks meet, you have this impromptu head-to-head -head trivia contest so, uh, to assert, you know, to see who's the dominant geek in the yeah. situation. Nice. <laughs> um, so we did a little bit of that and... Um, and then broadened out and uh, focused into the areas that uh, the initial products for the game were looking at. Wow, that's so cool, um, man! And, and and then you know, you know, what what was the difference between like transitioning from uh, like role playing games and and, and and the like to you know doing the same thing for a video game? Um, actually, the way I did it. Uh, back then it wasn't too difficult because um i was i'd done a, a certain amount of work with the uh, old choose your own adventure style books not that series but the whole numbered paragraph choose your own adventure kind of thing and um so i, I knew something about constructing interactive stories and, uh, you know, building the flow charts and everything else. And that came in handy constructing dialogue for uh, some of the old adventure games at the time, the sort of Monkey Island style of game. Oh, yeah. And so that's where I started. And I, the rest of it I kind of learned as I went. And um, then over, you know, about a decade or so, um, the games became more sophisticated, uh, deeper, and the... Um, the discipline of game design became a lot more specialized. So for about the last 10 years or so, I've specialized as a writer. Okay. Um, and there are, you know, there are AI designers and technical designers and interface designers and all, all kinds of designers with all kinds of skills, none of which I possess. <laughs> well, I, I would imagine you probably have the more fun because you can sit there and write the adventure. Then it's up to somebody else to, <laughs> And do the engineering. Yeah, yeah. If if only that were true. I mean, oh, okay. 
<laughs> to to an extent it is and that's what everybody get you know everybody starts off thinking oh yeah i'll just but you you kind of have to write into quite a tight space because you have to make sure you don't you don't write anything that the game can't do right and at the same time you have to make it look as like you have to make it look as though you're not that the game can do everything so you have to hide those little walls that you bump up against wow that that's interesting i i, ne I never would have thought you know that you so I, I take it you've you've ran into situations where you've written things that can't be produced oh yeah yeah you know wow. I, I've, been, I've been told yes we can put this many characters in a scene uh, to, to this standard of quality, but we would sell two copies, one to NASA and one to the CIA because only a Cray supercomputer has the power to do that. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Interesting. So it seems like too many characters or too many background characters. It's like, yeah, yeah you put this down. Well, you know, back in back in the nineties, that was certainly the case, but you, yeah. you see games now where you can have thousands of, uh, of, you know, animated characters on screen and it's quite amazing. Yeah. Um, Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Um, it and and then you know, was it just a natural progression getting into you know uh, you know writing stories and uh, and and um, you know kind of editing and curating your own uh, collection of uh, of books? On, uh... Yeah, it, it was kind of. Yeah, um, I'd kind of known that I wanted to work in in writing and storytelling ever since I was. Uh, a, probably about six or seven. I was making up stories. English was my best subject at school, especially composition. And um, so I always loved doing that. And in a way, when I got into games, you know, they offered me a chance to explore my obsession with monsters and mythology and horror and, and that. But it was also a form of writing where uh, I could get published. And it, it was a lot harder, to, a lot easier rather to break into than straight fiction. Yeah. And I always uh, wanted to get back to more fiction and literature kind of approach. Um, and and I did. I've written a couple of uh, game tie-in uh, novels. And uh, and then I, I discovered the, the love of going back over, you know, what was written decades and centuries ago and recovering uh, – rediscovering uh, writers who you'd never suspect and stories that you never knew of. Yeah. And, uh, and that's kind of what's behind a, a lot of my anthology work is just uh, keeping these writers and their stories alive. That's that's absolutely uh, wonderful. Oh, it looks like we've got a little comment. Uh, Daylene uh, Murray uh, says, love and respect, uh, Mr. Davis. So you've got some admirers out there. Oh, I thank you very much. <laughs> um so with uh you know with your collection of uh, of stories uh you have got uh you know the, the two that I know of you mm -hmm. know colonial horrors you know what 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 made you uh decide to 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 focus on on that collection and and, and who's featured you know what stories are featured in there um well th this goes back to a tabletop game I was working on um which is called colonial gothic and um it's basically the american revolution plus the supernatural oh cool it's uh, set in that sort of period and um one of the things i wanted to do with that game um 
was to develop a fiction line. And to kick that off as a sort of proof of concept, I put together the book that became Colonial Horrors. Mm. Um, sadly, it became apparent that uh, Colonial Gothic, it, it, it's a, a nice game. It's got a, a, a very small but very passionate following, but it never broke out uh, the way that games sometimes don't. Mm -hmm. And um, so I took the idea to a publisher and... Um, Along the way, I discovered that really the colonial era is what American Gothic fiction is all about. It's the native soil. You see that that sort of set of motifs and you know that you're dealing with American Gothic horror, mm -hmm. uh, you know, wherever it appears, whether it's um, Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, or it's uh, movies like The Witch that came out a few years ago. That's if it's set in the colonial era... It's American horror, and you know what you're dealing with, uh, which is nice because that's a sort of an interesting counterpart to European Gothic, mm -hmm. which has all the crumbling castles and deserted monasteries and, and what have you. Um, oh, interesting. So I, I sort of explored that idea a little bit in the introduction, and the publisher liked what I was doing. Um, plus, you know, I found some, some kind of uh, unexpected writers um, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne, best known for the Scarlet Letter, and uh, which has scarred many a young mind in, in high school, <laughs> but it's not actually horror, just uh, a horrific experience. Um, uh, but he wrote a lot of supernatural fiction, um, and um, uh, Fenimore Cooper, Last of the Mohicans, uh, he wrote a small uh, amount of uh, of supernatural and you know i discovered that that genres were very fluid back then people hadn't really gotten the idea that you wrote in a genre and that was your brand right and people wrote, wrote whatever they wanted to when i was uh, collecting more deadly than the male which focuses on on female authors mm -hmm. um i discovered stories by edith wharton and uh, Louisa May Alcott and Harriet Beecher Stowe, people you'd never really think of as writing horror. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun just, uh, you know, saying to people, did you know that Louisa May Alcott wrote one of the first mummy stories? And people just look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's great. That that's gonna be fun doing that that research and be able it to is. find all these these hidden treasures, um, you know, stuff known and and stuff that kind of needs to be rediscovered. Yeah, yeah, and uh, in in a way, the more deadly than the male grew seamlessly out of my research for colonial horrors because it was when I was doing that research I discovered the Louisa May Alcott story. Okay. And then I thought, hang on, there's more here, but it doesn't fit in this book. So I put it aside and come back to it later. And uh, honestly, the more you look, the more you find. Yeah, yeah, most mm -hmm. definitely. The, uh, yeah, now you and I off camera, we were talking a little bit about, uh, um, you know, when you're putting together a collection, you know, you come across, you know, some of these, you know, classic, you know, stories. Mm -hmm. And from an editor's point of view, you're just like, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, why did they have this line here? Why did they move this punctuation? Yeah. This should be, you know, is um, do you find that in you know, 
to be uh, pretty prevalent in a lot of the stories or, you know, is it just, you know, some stuff? And then are you free to, to make those changes? Um, I prefer not to make those changes because I want to respect the original. Right. You know, warts and all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I'm, I'm sort of going uh, a bit outside my lane, I feel. Okay. Um, You're just curating. Just curating, exactly. And... Um, and and otherwise, there's sort of two sides to it. On the one hand, you've got your period language, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is part of the original. It's part of the charm of the original. And I'm I'm a I'm curating. I'm not retelling. Okay. Uh, and uh, the other is, uh, as you say, the uh, sometimes you you wish they were better writers, no matter how significant they were. Right. Uh, and my favorite example of this is uh, is uh, Dr. Polidori, who mm. wrote the seminal story, The Vampire. Yeah. And uh, I've read a couple of retellings of it before I, I finally tracked down the original. And when I did track down the original, it was uh, almost unreadable, not just because of the period language. The, the, uh, I suspect it only got published because there was this rumor that it was actually written by Lord Byron, and Lord Byron was a rock star at the time. Yeah, uh, the uh, I mean, way before the the Rolling Stones or anyone or Axl Rose or anyone else you care to mention was wrecking hotel rooms and uh, and frightening the fathers of teenage daughters. Lord Byron was doing it all across Europe, and, and so anything. Yeah, and anything <laughs> with his name on was going to sell. So that was the, the rumor there. But uh, I remember one very unkind reviewer uh, from 20th century reviewer said that no one who has read The Vampire can doubt the wisdom of Polidori's suicide, which is <laughs> pretty much the harshest review I've ever come across. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, yeah. that's intense. Oh, geez. The uh, you, you know, you and I were, were talking about um, you know, the movie Gothic by by Ken Russell. That's right. And it, uh, yeah, I had recalled, and, and I, th- I think you know, it was um, because of the film that uh, you know, Mary Shelley and 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 Lord Byron. And a couple other writers, you know, had had uh, some type of competition to see who mm-hmm. could who could write up a scary story. And yeah, where where the germ of you know Frankenstein came out of. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This was, I believe, it was eighteen eighteen, something like that. And um, she wasn't Mary Shelley yet. Uh, she was Mary Godwin because uh, Shelley's first wife was still alive. But um, they were basically doing the wild child thing all across Europe, as they were wont to do. It was um, Byron uh, with Polidori, who was his uh, personal physician, mm-hmm. um, and, and General Rhodey, I suspect. And uh, Percy Shelley, uh, Byron's friend, and Mary Godwin, who was his girlfriend at the time. And uh, they fetched up in switzerland uh staying in an old chateau where bad weather kept them indoors for a while mm. and for the sake of something to do they decided to have a a contest for writing ghost stories um, oh, oh. and byron came up with nothing 
and Shelley came up with next to nothing. Uh, Polidori came up with the germ of the vampire, and Mary Shelley, as everybody knows, uh, created Frankenstein. Nice. So you know, two out of four ain't bad. No, um, no, it's it's still fifty percent. <laughs> yeah, but in terms of kicking off classic horror genres, right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, it's not bad at all. And um, yeah, Ken Russell's Gothic is his sort of rock and roll interpretation of the events of that night. Yeah, um, if, if I remember right, too, like, you know, it wasn't. Um, and again, my knowledge comes based off of the, the film. Right. You, you have. Uh, yeah, you've actually researched this stuff. <laughs> well, I've read um, a couple of books. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but. You know, I think you you uh, suggested it earlier that uh, that Byron got the credit for the vampire um, yeah. story too. Yeah, um, well, the, the the lead character in uh, in the vampire is called Lord Ruffin, mm -hmm. and he is a thinly disguised homage to Byron by Polidori, who I think liked him a lot, and yeah. um, and. Um, <clears throat> so everybody, everybody knew. Well, this is this is Lord Byron, you know, fast living rock star poet, um, disguised as a vampire, and uh, it's the the rumor kind of grew from there that Byron had actually written it, and uh, it, it was in some way a manifesto. There's a there's a section in which Ruthven um, expounds on what it is to be a vampire and, uh, you know, essentially why he likes hanging out in the bedchambers of attractive young women and biting them in the neck. Um, and uh, it's almost like a manifesto kind of thing. And um, people sort of conflated that and said, oh, well, you know, obviously he's publishing it under a pseudonym. Um, Polydor is fronting for him, but he actually wrote it. And on that basis, it sold like wildfire. Wow, nice. You, you know, researching a lot of these stories, do you, do you find that the creation of the story is is just as interesting as as what's being written? Um, I do, and also the lives of the uh, of the authors. Um, this was particularly true when I was researching more deadly than the male. Yeah, because with a very very few exceptions. Um, these these ladies aren't really known, you know. Mary Shelley is very much the exception, mm -hmm. uh, and there are some unexpected, like I said, Edith Wharton and Louisa May Alcott and Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, writing outside their accustomed genre. Um, but a lot of these ladies were, uh, and here's something I discovered after the book had gone to print. Otherwise, I'd have put it in. Yeah. Uh, but. During that late 19th century golden age of, of short form horror fiction that was spurred by the, uh, the expansion, the uh, spread of magazines and newspapers uh, mm -hmm. all across the world, um, as much as I think it was 80 percent of horror stories were actually written by women. Wow. I know that blew me away. And nobody knew that uh, until it was some uh academic figured it out uh as i say in about 2018 and um oh. so there's all this stuff and all these women and and their stories are fascinating um because there's very little that an educated woman was allowed to do in the 19th century right um and uh you know if 
their husband abandoned them or died or was just a no good bum and they had to support the family. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't go work in a shop or a factory or take a, a, a job. It, it, someone of their class just wasn't allowed. Uh, but writing sort of got grandfathered in under sort of ladylike artistic pursuits. And so it was it was somewhat permissible. Now, some of them published under male pseudonyms uh, like yeah. or gender neutral ones, you know, like J.K. Rowling did. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some of them uh, published as Mrs. plus their husband's name. And mm -hmm. some of them actually published under their own names. But wow. it didn't seem to matter. There was a, an insatiable demand for, for content with this new, uh, you know, periodical uh, medium exploding. Yeah. And um, they all, you know, and they all seem to uh, manage to keep their families afloat or express themselves or do whatever else they, they set out to do by writing. And um, and that's really great. Um, yeah. And I think like, um, again, this comes from the movie Gothic. Oh, my gosh. I do not do any homework. This is pathetic. Uh, but, you know. Uh, it was suggested that uh, that Mary Shelley's husband, you know, took a lot of the writing credit for a time, even oh, with yeah. yeah, and that's a story you see repeated over and over again. Um, sometime, well, I guess about a year ago, I was on a plane and I saw a, a movie uh, about Colette, uh, the French writer, right? Uh, very well known today, proto-feminist, and. Um, but for a period of, of years, um, her husband, who was a, a hack writer, right. published the stories under his own name and took all the credit until she finally decided she'd had enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think I remember um, a feature film that uh, Tim Burton did. It was like Big Eyes or Bright Eyes about uh, uh, an artist, uh, a female artist that was uh, painting these, these really. Oh, yes. Yes. I remember that. Of you know, children with with huge, uh, yeah, you know, eyes, and the husband was taking all the credit, and it went on for decades. Yeah, understanding. Oh and, yeah, uh, it's it, yeah. Wow, what little men! I know. <laughs> how how we have not all been murdered in our beds? I do not know. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad not all of us gone the way of uh, like uh, the the story of uh, John Wayne and and uh, Lorena Bobbitt. <laughs> Quite. Yeah. Uh, but uh, man, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty fascinating. Um, the now when you were uh, researching, um, you know, the stories that you wanted to collect for, um, you know, more deadly than the male. Where did that um, idea come from? Was that a continuation with colonial horrors or um, did it just kind of, you know, sprout about you know, some other place? Well, it, it all started when I was researching colonial for colonial horrors. Mm -hmm. And I discovered this very early mummy tale written by Louisa May Alcott. That's right. Okay. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. And then in the anthologies I'd read down the years, I'd come across a couple of other female authors. But then I started to discover that there were hordes of them. Yeah. Um, 
most of them surprising or obscure. Mm-hmm. And uh, in both cases, I thought they deserve credit for their work in the horror field. And um, before I knew it, I had enough for a book and some very interesting stories, not just the stories themselves, but the stories, as I said, of the of the ladies who wrote them. And, um, you know, since the, the publisher had quite liked uh, colonial horrors, they uh, they let me do this one as well. Oh, cool. Uh, are you currently w- working on another collection? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pitching a couple of different ideas. I don't want to tip my hand too much. Um, but um, I recently stepped outside the horror genre and uh, curated a collection of early detective stories. Oh, cool. Um, using the, uh, the time-worn and simply seemingly inescapable title, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. There are probably five books with that title. Mine is the most recent. Mm-hmm. And um, showing you know how the detective uh, story genre got started, what the effect of Holmes was, how people tried to imitate him at first. And then uh, when there was that hiatus um, after the Reichenbach Falls where uh, Conan Doss killed Holmes off and stopped writing, uh, various people stepped up and tried to be the new Holmes and then he came back. And it's it's quite a, a, an interesting story. And you can kind of see the uh, the, the shadow of, of Holmes uh, uh, kind of falling over it all. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. That, that's... Yeah, that's pretty intriguing. Does um, do, do you find a lot of parallels between uh, like uh, detective, uh, you know, stories like that and and horror genre? Um, yeah, to an extent, yes, because um, they all kind of come from the same place. There was this period in the um, second half of the nineteenth century, as I've said, where. Uh, uh, I think it was probably advances in printing combined with people moving to the cities more. Um, and there was just this explosion of newspapers and periodicals and short form fiction everywhere. Right. Here's a fun fact. Did you know that the first issues of Cosmopolitan uh, were actually published short stories? Oh, uh, no, including, I horror, including horror and detective fiction and all sorts, you wow. know, it wasn't, uh, you know, the um, the whole 25 ways to get him hot and bothered didn't start until they reinvented it sometime in the 70s. <laughs> so how long did they, were they publishing stories? Like, um, At least up until the 20s or 30s. I didn't really uh, didn't really check further than that. Um, and that, that's that's another thing about doing this kind of project. You you can find yourself getting sucked down so many sidetracks and and right. uh, you know uh, and eventually end up not finishing your project. So I have to kind of <laughs> stick True. to the task at hand. You got to put that rabbit hole right off to the side. I'll get that's back right. to you on Thursday. Yeah, write <laughs> it down and come back to it later when the uh, when the project's finished. <laughs> Nice. Well, uh, Dalene uh, uh, mentioned uh, that's awesome. Uh, I'm not sure what she's referring to, but maybe the whole kit and caboodle. Um, I think it was when we were talking about the uh, uh, the contributions of of women to early horror and how long they've gone unrecognized. Even better, yeah. That's uh, that that is uh, pretty wonderful to to discover. You know. 
all that. Um, the now with obviously with your your career in games and video games, you're working on you know writing uh, new new projects, new role playing games, right? New new video mm-hmm. games. It, um, you know, can you talk about uh, to any effect on uh, on what those projects are? Yeah, sure. Um... As I said earlier, when I was at college, uh, I played far too much uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and I eventually got hired by Games Workshop to write a role-playing game for them based on their Warhammer dark fantasy property. Mm-hmm. And um, that game, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, just got released in a new fourth edition a um, couple of years ago. And I've been going back over a series of adventures for that game called The Enemy Within, which was um, very well received at the time in uh, the late 80s. Actually got voted uh, best role-playing campaign of all time. Um, nice. joint- yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've been going back over this and doing what they're calling a director's cut, upgrading it to the new... Uh, new edition of the rules, putting in a lot of stuff that I couldn't put in back in the day for various reasons, changing a few things around, um, giving uh, people options. Because some people have played this campaign four or five times. So, yeah. Uh, So I needed to put in a few tricks and twists so it would be fresh this time around. And uh, also, because it's that kind of game, to give the, uh, the, the games master, the referee, ways to punish and humiliate players who think they know what's going on because they played it before. Oh, that's, that's so cool. So that's uh, that's a, a 10 book series. I'm currently in the middle of writing the 10th book and the first uh, two or three are out now. Uh, the publisher's name is cubicle seven. They're based in Ireland and oh, cool. um, the game is Warhammer fantasy role play. So uh, check that out. If you're interested in dark fantasy, uh, particularly dark fantasy with a twisted sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> and um, I'm also working on a, a video game right now. Uh, I'm contracting with a studio in Paris called uh, Tactical Adventures. And they're a bunch of old tabletop role players from way back, and uh, they've all made livings in the video games industry. And they're doing a passion project right now which is to bring Dungeons and Dragons style role-playing, tabletop role-playing to the computer in a way that's more satisfying than any previous attempts. And it's it's been tried for years and years and years since the old D&D gold box games of the 80s. But um, they've uh, the game is called Solaster, Crown of the Magister, and it's a classic high fantasy single-player, four-character, party-based adventure game. Oh, cool. Uh, And um, I've been um, working with a couple of of their writers and their game design team to help uh, create a unique fantasy world and uh, the storyline for the adventure itself. Nice. Man, so no shortage of uh, projects. (gasps) No, that's right. You've got some great things coming Gotta out. Gotta be busy, yeah. Yeah, it, and you know, are you uh, you know writing any uh, original stories for yourself too? Like you know, to be published as a novel. Um, I've I've always got 
a bunch of ideas in the back of a drawer waiting for, for me to have time to get to them. Yeah. And uh, I'm hoping, um, hopefully before the end of this year, to actually uh, start something uh, with Patreon and maybe do some writing through that. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm looking into that. Um, and uh, I've also got another tabletop role-playing project starting up, uh, which is um, a, a collaborative uh, with a lot of, a bunch of people I've worked with uh, down the years, and we've basically decided to get together and do the gaming equivalent of a super group, as <laughs> sometimes called it. Wow. And that's called The Rookery. The Rookery, okay. And which is, you know, not just where a bunch of crows hang out, but it's also an old fashioned term for a, a thief's kitchen. You oh, know, yeah. London nice. slang. And uh, so we're a we're a parcel of rogues and we're uh, we're going to do this uh, very cool role playing product project, which we haven't announced yet. But uh, we've started to get set up on Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter and uh Hopefully there'll be some more announcements about that forthcoming within the next few months. Yeah, keep us uh you know tuned in. Yeah, let us know how things uh yeah. developed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure yeah, everybody that's uh that's watching this um you know will be uh interested. Um yeah, as as you were talking too, I was thinking it's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have like a an online video game, you know, or a, a role playing game where you know everybody mm -hmm. can just pop in on, on social media and, and, uh, yeah, a, a lot of people have been doing that. Um, okay. there's, uh, gosh, I think roll 20 is one of the, the major platforms, but there are a few of them out there. And I, I hear from a lot of people, um, who are playing online now. Uh, and it's, it's, it's great because, you know, not only does it defeat the COVID and right. enables us to, to play while social distancing, mm -hmm. but also, uh, now that these platforms are mature and they're working better than they ever have, um, that dream of getting the old college group back together, you know, reliving those memories, uh, it, it's now within reach, even though everybody's scattered to the winds. Right. Well, and there's there's no excuse now. All you got is 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 time and and uh, right. <laughs> Yep. That's that's yeah. wonderful. Um, you know, Graham, you know, you, you, we, we talked a, a great deal about literature and, uh, you know, earlier when we were off camera, you were talking about, uh, you know, um, you know, cope, uh, coping with, you know, quarantine and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you and your wife are, are basically just, uh, you know, at home writing, editing and uh, just you eat out less. So, um, that, that's honestly and. I'm sorry, this is going to make a lot of people sick, but uh, that's been the only impact on our lives, really, has been no more lunches out. Um, right, right. So we're incredibly lucky because of the, the life we've chosen. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of homebodies by inclination anyway. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're all doing fine. That's, that's, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm glad you guys are yeah, staying busy, staying health, healthy. Um, you know, obviously, you know, with, uh, with Wi-Fi, you're able to connect with loved ones, you know, across the pond. Yeah, uh, definitely. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know how we would have, anybody would have coped without the internet, 
you know, right. I don't know how they did it in 1918. Right, right. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about the the Spanish flu, and and uh, it's like, geez, you know, let alone <laughs> not not getting in, you know, a constant strand of uh, you know information. That's know, right. Back yeah. then, and a copious more amount of people, you know, dying and getting sick at, during that time around the world. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, at the same time, I, I guess there's, you know, uh, you know, with with less information being being transmitted, probably uh, less uh, misinformation also <laughs> being transmitted. Yes, yeah, that, that's <laughs> probably true. Right, but yeah. but at least you know they, uh, I guess uh, in hindsight, you know, they were able to to you know their entertainment was to to pass the time was reading uh you know a fantastic novel or you know um, yeah yeah i suspect a lot of them did yeah and, and you know a lot of the you know the horror stories too that you know the shorts short stories that uh, you've you've come across and curated too um and, and correct me if i'm wrong um you know the you was it the late 19th century started getting like the the penny yeah. dreadful uh, uh, that's right. The Penny Dreadfuls and the dime novels. And yeah. uh, at the same time, as I say, an explosion of magazines, periodicals, newspapers of all kinds, this whole new medium, just uh, hungry for content. It's very similar to uh, kind of how uh, the, the online media were 10 or 15 years ago, just that oh, there was okay. this beast that needed feeding. Right, right. Um, yeah. Did uh, have you ever... Uh, you know, well, I, I don't know what the, what the difference would be between the, you know, the, the Penny Dreadfuls, the, you know, the quality of the Penny Dreadfuls, you know, stories and, and some of the short stories, uh, you know, from, from writers like Mary Shelley would be, but um, have you ever thought about curating something specifically like that? Um, yeah, that's certainly an idea. Um, yeah. It's all, it's all a question of, of finding the right angle. Uh -huh. You know, I, I had ready-made themes with uh, colonial horrors and, and more deadly than the male. Right. And um, and there, the thing is, there are plenty of people who are currently strip mining Project Gutenberg and just uh, pumping out these undifferentiated collections. And I, I try to be a little more thoughtful than that, try to right. not just present the stories, but um, make the stories tell a story or at least um you know um support a an idea or a thesis like women were important in early horror or yeah. the colonial era is uh, the native soil of american gothic fiction um and to you know do more than just uh, just regurgitate stuff so for for that it's really important to have uh an angle a, an idea to to base the collection around it, it's yeah it, it sounds like it's you know um you know curating in that way uh makes for um really uh you know the potential for really good meaty uh conversation too yeah has, definitely has has the, the response you know just sparked you know a lot of conversation um i've had a a, a few uh, comments and conversations online um, mm -hmm. and uh you know whenever i i do signings uh, always uh 
always have some interesting conversations there with with people who show up because they're interested in a particular story or writer um i remember when i did the uh the signing at the the bookies bookstore which we talked about for uh for colonial horrors um one of the stories in there was actually a novel excerpt from um a writer called charles brockton brown who uh, is almost unknown today but he is credited as being the very first gothic writer in american literature no kidding and uh, uh somebody showed up at that signing who was a member of the charles brockton brown society and wow. had studied his work passionately and uh, his first question was do you have anything in your collection by charles brockton brown because you really should you know and i was able to say oh yes i do <laughs> and uh, we, we then embarked on this this slightly one-sided conversation where i was trying to keep up with his depth of knowledge on this one writer <laughs> and uh, but it was a lot of fun i, I learned quite a bit that's that's pretty cool. So yeah. you know, researching a lot of these a lot of the authors, you know, do you ever come across something that's just you know absolutely shocking or you know almost almost to the point of like you know it's almost you know be considered taboo with some of these writers? Um, not really. Um, and you know that may be because I haven't stuck my toe in the penny dreadfuls, which were definitely shock and sensation fiction um, but um no so far um what i've discovered is that um horror was much more psychological this is one of the themes of more deadly than the male but it applies across the board yeah. um, there was very little if any um splatter mm. or visceral horror yeah. Uh, a lot of it was psychological and uh, particularly, uh, not exclusively, but particularly with the female authors. Uh, one example I like to quote is um, in More Deadly Than the Male, I've got a story called The Hidden Door by mm -hmm. a writer called Vernon Lee, writing under a male pseudonym. Her real name was Violet Paget. And I could go on about her for hours. In fact, I may have to try and pitch an, a biography of her to somebody. Oh, cool. uh, fascinating character. But anyway, the story is basically about the psychological effects of guilt. Mm -hmm. So it's got a lot in common with Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Mm -hmm. But um, with all due deference to Poe and his many, many admirers, uh, I think the uh, the hidden door is a superior story because Poe, and I'm going to make myself unpopular here, he did get a little overwrought at times. Yeah. Uh, and I could see, you know, why in the telltale heart he chose to go that route, putting himself in the increasingly fevered mind of the, um, mm -hmm. the protagonist, racked by guilt. Yeah. But it all came out to my particular taste, is a little bit overcooked, whereas uh, Lee or Violet Paget in the in the Hidden Door displays a much lighter, defter touch, which actually makes the horror, the psychological horror, more vivid. Mm. Because it's not, you know, you're th there's no one slapping you in the face with a fish or or right. whatever all the time. Right. 
it's not not so heavy-handed yeah yeah it's like those ghost stories where everything those movies where everything happens off screen and they right. can be uh, a lot more frightening than actually seeing a man in a rubber suit right 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 yeah yeah that's that's what makes you know uh as far as films go stuff like alien you know yeah. so uh so effective because you never really see the the full creature. that's right yeah the glimpses yeah so so when you have you know that abstraction you know going on in in a story you know especially you know something in in prose it a lot it as as long as it's engaging you know it just That's allows right. your your imagination to run wild but if everything yeah if everything's just kind of you know here's column a here's column b it's like oh well, that's great and it's yeah like, well at least you're, you're you can write well that's that's wonderful the um yeah it's is there yeah we're we're starting to run out of time but um is there like uh, any topic that you know you down the road would just absolutely love to you know to tackle um well one of my my big interests as i say going back to the monsters and uh, mm -hmm. my early D, &D days i i ransacked the folklore section of my local library for new monsters that my players wouldn't have seen so i could put something over on them and that's developed into a love of folklore and folk horror and I'm 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 detecting a ripple in the zeitgeist right now, particularly in games towards folk horror. Okay. And um, there's a couple of games that are on the brink of coming out. Uh, one is called uh, Vesen, V-A-E-S-E-N. Now that word might be familiar to anybody who's uh, seen the uh, the TV series Grimm, because that's what the folklore monsters were called there uh, this comes out of sweden where they've got a lot of really scary folklore monsters and it's a it's a tabletop role-playing game of investigation and confronting horror cool. um, but it doesn't have cthulhu in it it's completely folklore yeah yeah <laughs> uh, and um, then there's another game coming out uh in the states which is called um solemn veil and that also looks interesting. And that's that takes as its inspiration the sort of folk horror of the British movies of the mid-70s, like The Wicker Man. Nice. Okay. And tries to create that kind of world and feel. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm very interested to see uh, how uh, how folk horror is going to develop in uh, in the future, in the immediate future. Uh, and that's that's something I, I may try and uh, do something with if I can, uh, as I say, figure out the right angle. Yeah. Oh, that's that sounds uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, a, uh, oh, it looks like uh, uh, Delene has has been commenting. It was, yes, women writers. That's and, right. And there's always nature too. Yeah. Um, you know, when dealing with the Spanish book, even now, go out and, and uh, you know rummage around in, in nature. Uh, versus yeah. just getting stuck uh, inside all the time. Yeah, but, definitely. We're very fortunate. We we there's a trail sort of runs within about a hundred yards of our house, so oh, nice. uh, we nice. just uh, go out and walk along that a couple of times a week. And uh, yeah, it makes a big difference. Get outside the four walls, stretch your eyes a bit. Right, right. Yeah, you can get cooped up and go a little stir crazy. That's right. 
Um, yeah, yeah. So for everybody out there um, that's that's watching, make sure you go and find uh, Colonial Horrors, More Deadlier Than the Mail, uh, on your uh, you know e retailer, um, or go to your local bookstore and have them yeah. order. Go to your bookstore. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, a, a new service I've just come across called, I think it's bookshop.org. Oh, cool. I need to check that. But it's it's sort of um, a collective effort run by bookstores for bookstores and supporting bookstores. And it uh, you order online and, uh, and get books delivered just as if you were using the Big River. But... Um, uh, the the nice thing about it is that all their participating bookstores are, are members of a profit share scheme. Oh, cool! And so you know you can order online and still support uh, your friendly local bookstore at the same time. Wow, which I think is a tremendous idea. That is wonderful, and it's uh, bookstore.org? dot uh, org. Bookshop dot org. I think. Uh, let me just uh, do a quick Google here. Hang on. Yeah. Uh, that sounds good. Yes, bookshop.org. Bookshop.org. Okay, sweet. So go to bookshop.org and so you know, and support your local uh, bookstore Absolutely. and uh, and uh, get Graham Davis's collections. So remember, Colonial Horrors, Deadly to the Mail, and uh, while you're at it, look up his. Uh, his video games and his uh, role-playing games. I thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what was it? What were those? Uh, Warhammer? Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And yeah. um, Solasta Crown of the Magister is not released yet, hopefully the yeah. end of this year. Uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, the series uh, The Enemy Within, is in the process of, uh, of being released. And... Um, Yep. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Graham J. Davis. And uh, I also got a Facebook author page uh, where I, I post anything that's coming up. Uh, I, I shamelessly promote my work because uh, need those royalties. Yes. Excellent. Uh, we we want to you know, keep seeing uh, your great work coming out and uh, also keep you well and safe at home until <laughs> this all passes. Thanks a lot. Over. Yeah. And, or all this becomes the new normal. Right. And you know, things change for the better, maybe, I hope. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, if nothing else, people are embracing, um, you know, a lot of things like remote working and uh, online socializing in a, in a way that they haven't before. And uh, that's going to, I think society is going to be changed forever by this. Yeah, most, most definitely. Great. Well, thanks so much, uh, Graham. Um, we're we're gonna yeah, end the broadcast here in a second, and uh, just to let everybody uh, you know know out there, um, yeah, this is brought to you by um, yeah, Summer Twins Talent, Summer Twins Productions, COFO, uh, mm -hmm. the Colorado Festival of Horror, in association with our good friends, another wonderful bookstore here in town. Mutiny Information Cafe. They are the most right. dangerous bookstore in the world. And they have coffee. Excellent. Graham, <laughs> uh, um, thanks so much again. And no, uh, Thank you for having me. Yes, uh, it's, it's a great pleasure. Hopefully we can uh, chat with you again soon. And thanks to our, uh, 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 our commentator, uh, Daylene, for chiming in.
Yeah, thanks, Darlene. <laughs> so uh, greatly appreciate it. And uh, with that, uh, yeah, have a good night, everybody. Uh, be kind to one, one another. Yep, be kind, be safe, be sensible.